we'll, we'll certainly make sure to keep Salette's mother in prayer. Uh, I think we're a little bit lighter uh, this evening. I figure it's either because it's spring break or uh, a lot of y'all found out that I was teaching tonight. And so we'll let y'all be the judge. My son decided uh, to join us tonight. And uh, he said he wanted to hear me teach. So uh, that was great. I think he's probably going to regret that, though. Um, we'll see. But, uh, you know, recently we, we got to see the uh, new trailer for the upcoming Obi-Wan Kenobi series that's coming out. I think hopefully everybody's seen that by now. You, you do know who Obi-Wan Kenobi is, right? Uh, I, I think everybody knows who he is, has seen Star Wars, or at least heard of Star Wars, but I suppose there's possibility that somebody has no idea who, what Star Wars is. All right, that's a little bit better. Um, Star Wars is really just another take on the fight between good and evil. You have the Jedi fighting for good, and you have the Sith fighting for evil. And, uh, I mean, there's, this story's been going on for since the 70s. That's 50 years, and uh, there are several side stories that have branched out over the years in the Star Wars franchise, but for the most part, Star Wars... Star Wars primarily follows the lives of Anakin Skywalker and his children, Luke and Leia Skywalker. Anakin's story begins as a young boy on a desert planet called Tatooine, where he and his mother are slaves. Anakin is freed from his slavery and becomes a pupil, or Padawan as they call it, of Obi-Wan Kenobi. All the while, Civil unrest sets in, and as the evil Sith Lord Palpatine uh, manipulates events in the sh from the shadows, and then the galaxy implodes into all-out warfare. And this war, of course, lasts for many years, uh, while Anakin grows from a young boy to a young man, becoming one of the greatest uh, Jedi to have ever lived under the tutelage of Obi-Wan Kenobi, who is now a mighty general in the war. As the war rages on, though, he develops a forbidden and romantic relationship with a young woman named Padme Amidala. They secretly get married, and Padme becomes pregnant with what we later find out to be twins. Anakin becomes so obsessed with keeping his wife and children safe from harm and death that in his conquest for power to protect them, he becomes manipulated by the Sith Lord Palpatine into joining the dark side, and becoming what we know as Darth Vader, the enemy of the Jedi. Obi-Wan tries to stop Anakin, of course, uh, but fails. Padme ultimately dies of a broken heart because of Anakin's betrayal. And the twins, Luke and Leia, are born separated and hidden for their protection. And Obi-Wan returns Luke to his home planet Tatooine, to his uncle Lars, where Obi-Wan spends the rest of his life watching over and protecting Luke as the new galactic empire, Emperor Palpatine and Darth Vader now focus their efforts on hunting, and down, hunting down and killing the all-surviving Jedi. And that is where the opening scene of the Obi-Wan Kenobi trailer picks up. Uh, images of the desert planet Tatooine flash across the screen and we hear the defeated voice of Obi-Wan Kenobi say, the fight is done, we lost. You see, fighting, struggle, and war is a common theme in all relationships. God created mankind for relationship and 
with himself and with each other, but Satan, however, intervened like Palpatine and manipulated events from the shadows. And now sin exists in relationships, and now there is friction. Now, when we're by ourselves, we may think that we're fine. We may think that we're doing good. But when you enter into the equation a spouse, a child, a friend, a pastor, a church member, a co-worker, a boss, a brother, or a sister, uh, there will be friction because of the sin that exists in our own hearts. Because after all, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. And because our hearts are selfish, all too often our mouths speak selfishness, deceit, lies, slanders, criticisms, accusations, condemnations, ridicules, opinions, and so on. Our words are the bedrock of our relationships. They are the tool with which we build our relationships and communicate with each other. And left unchecked and unguided, we place our relationships at risk of becoming a battle of who can come out on top, who can have the last word, or who can overpower the other. Maybe you're here tonight, and the destructive power of your words have laid waste to your most meaningful relationships, and you find yourself saying similar words as Obi-Wan Kenobi. The fight is done. I lost. Maybe you're not there yet, but you're well on your way, and you just don't know it. Maybe you do know it, but you don't know how to stop it. If we're truly honest with ourselves, at some level, we are all on this spectrum somewhere. We're all at some level of risk of losing the war of words. But it doesn't have to be that way. Victory can be ours. Sure, Satan brought sin into relationships, but Christ brings grace. Christ brings forgiveness. Christ brings sacrifice. Christ brings redemption and healing. Christ brings victory. He brings so much more. And in the name of Jesus Christ, the war of words can be won. But how do we get there? Well, in previous lessons over the last two months, that's exactly what we have been learning. We learned in the beginning that God is the creator of our words, and he has a standard and design to which our words must meet, a design which Satan disrupted, and he began, Satan began the war of words. We learned that the problem with our words is our heart, and only Christ is the answer. We learned a life of godly communication can only be found when we submit to God's sovereignty, and his mission for our mouths is to be his ambassadors, Christ's representatives in our relationships. Two weeks ago, Pastor Brian taught us how our words can be used to rebuild and used to be, yeah, used to rebuild and used for restoration. And last week, Brother Kendall showed us how a change in our words can only begin with repentance. And next week, he'll show us how to choose our new words in Christ. Tonight, let's focus on six truths that will help us win the war of words. Let me give you a disclaimer first, though. As I've read through and taught through um, this book, I've come to finally think of this series as the wisdom of the two Pauls. Because you have Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament and is quoted often in Paul Tripp's book. And then you have Paul Tripp, who wrote the book, The War of Words. And there's plenty of occasions to quote both, but I'll do my best to distinguish the two of them for you as we go. Let's first start with our key passage in Galatians Chapter 5, verse 13, through chapter 6, verse 2. The Apostle Paul says, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. And so I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. And I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us then keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, for you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Let's pray. Dear God, we, uh, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for this opportunity to uh, gather together and to study your word and this, to learn how we can uh, win this war of words that Satan started so long ago. And we pray that you will work in our hearts and open our ears and our hearts to hear what you have to say. I pray that you will empty me of my own self and use me as a vessel for your uh, word uh, for the benefit of all of us. And uh, we, we again lift up Salette's mother and pray that you will um, heal her fever and uh, give the doctors wisdom. We love you. It's in your name, Christ Jesus, we pray. And everybody said, amen. That's, that's what I say when I pray with my children. And we end with, everybody said, amen. Um, all right, so how can you and I have lasting victory in this war of words? Well, uh, like I said, Paul Tripp gives us six tips that will help us. The first is that we must recognize the destructive power of words. Uh, Galatians 5.15 says that if you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. And what the Apostle Paul is getting at is the day in and day out nitpicking at each other. The, the griping and the fussing and the arguing and the sarcasm and, and, and everything else. Paul Tripp says that we will never win the war of words as long as we minimize how critical a battle it is. It's easy uh, for us to write off uh, the, the little daily issues. But here Paul Tripp calls out those of us who think that we're okay because we don't have any big sins of talk in our lives. Sure, we don't verbally or physically abuse those that we're in relationship with, but that does not discount the severity of the sins of talk that we give into in our daily lives. Now, literally as I'm preparing for this very point, uh, my son, I won't say which one, but both apply to each of them throughout this lesson. Uh, my son, I can hear my son uh, yelling uh, or singing, uh, both are about the same, uh, at the top of his lungs from the other end of the house while I'm in my office with my solid core door closed, I can hear him as if he's in my room. Uh, 
I get up to go confront him, uh, only to find out that what I actually heard was an audio recording of the Chronicles of Narnia that they were listening to, and there was some loud commotion going on in the background of the story. Now, that sounds like a funny incident, but it actually highlights this point very well. You see, my son's typical behavior is to be as loud as he possibly can. He has only one volume level, and it is cranked all the way up. Uh, so it's not unreasonable for me to assume that that was my son that I heard. But I can tell you that I'm learning quickly that there's always room to give benefit of the doubt. You see, I went out there ready to pounce. And uh, fortunately, my wife uh, was there to intercept and uh, stop me before I said something that I would regret. But here's the point. My son has a difficult time living within the rules that we have given him. Most kids do. And I imagine because of that that every family has at least one child like this. Now, rules are not a bad thing. And enforcing rules is not a bad thing. The Israelites needed rules so they could understand how to function as God's chosen nation. And kids need rules so they can understand how to function as adults. And I will be the first one to pull out all kinds of scripture that show us that parents have a God-given responsibility to train their children in the way they should go. But here's the risk. When we hold up rules as of having more value than developing a relationship with Jesus or developing a relationship with each other, and if we don't pair those rules with an equal measure of grace, and if we don't give our kids room to be kids, and to breathe, I mean, they are kids after all, not tiny adults, then we run the risk of crushing them under an atmosphere of hopelessness. There's countless ways that we can misuse our, our words uh, in what seem like little issues to us, but we cannot underestimate just how damaging it really is to those we love. Number two, we must affirm our freedom in Christ. Galatians 5.13 says that you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to judge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in, in love. Now, really, the best way to summarize uh, Paul Tripp's main idea here is really to quote the Apostle Paul again, but from a different uh, letter. Romans chapter 6. Now, if you, if you study that entire chapter... Uh, you would find that really it goes in very deep detail about what Paul Tripp is trying to show us here. But we'll cover a few highlight verses. The Apostle Paul says in verse 1 and 2, he asks, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died, so how can we live in it any longer? And in verse 7, he says, anyone who has died has been set free from sin. And in verse 18, he says, you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Paul Tripp puts it this way, that our freedom in Christ has not just a from aspect, but it also has a to aspect. We were not freed for freedom's sake. God did not free the Israelites from their bondage in Egypt just for the sake of their freedom. He freed them so that they could be his chosen nation his chosen people he freed them so they could be his light in a dark world and likewise we are freed from our bondage to sin so that we can take the gospel to a lost and dying world we are freed from our bondage to criticizing each other to ridiculing each other to gossiping with each other to slandering each other 
to condemning each other. We are freed from those things, but we are freed to love, encourage, teach, edify, counsel, and reconcile with one another. The next two points expand on this pretty well. Point three covers what we're freed from. And it's that we must say no to our sinful nature. Again, Galatians 5.13. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. And then verse 24. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now, Paul Tripp explains passions as fervent or intense emotions. And desires are things that the heart craves. And he says that sinners... Uh, as sinners in a sinful world, we are going to experience both. Paul, the Apostle Paul uh, tells us in verse 19 what these passions and desires are. He says, they are acts of, the acts of the flesh are sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. And he warns us that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God, which of course should give us as Christians an urgency uh, to get the gospel to people that live like this. Now these acts of the flesh cover the general spectrum of the sinner's life, but there's a few that are specific to how we speak to each other. Things like idolatry, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, divisions, and envy, all of this is in, can be in how we interact with each other. And they may, at first glance, sound like you know, maybe heinous sins that we would be quickly tempted to dismiss as not being attributable to ourselves. But if we really examine our hearts and take stock of what we think about people and how we talk about people, would we not find ourselves guilty? Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12, verses 36 and 37, that I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word that they speak. And for by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. And this is what he is saying. There is a day coming where we will stand before God. And we will be required to give a testimony for every word that we spoke without thought and so much more. Now, if you have ever given a deposition or a testimony in a trial in court, then you have some sense of what this will be like. You stand before a series of attorneys, judges, and juries and give a truthful account of your experience in whatever the trial is about. Now, if you've never been through that, then just take my word for it. It is an uncomfortable experience. Now, imagine standing before God. He's sitting in his judgment seat. Jesus is at his right hand, and you're surrounded by a whole host of angels and saints as far as the eye can see. And the trial is not about some thing that you may or may not have experienced, but it's about your life. It's about the words that you spoke. It's about you. You are the one that is on trial. And it's in this setting that you have to testify to every time you said something harsh, every time you said something sarcastic, hurtful, and untruthful. Now, I'll tell you from experience, it is smart and wise to prepare for a deposition or a testimony. It is smart and wise to practice for those things. And so if we were to do the same here and take time to practice for the upcoming trial that's coming before God and take a real honest look at our hearts and our thoughts and our words, 
would we not find ourselves truly guilty of all of the acts of the flesh that Paul lays out for us in Galatians 5? Paul Tripp puts it this way in his book. He asks, what parent hasn't had to deal with a child doing something foolish and irresponsible? What wife hasn't been disappointed by her husband? What husband hasn't thought his wife has failed to give him his just due? What child has not felt misunderstood and mistreated by his parent? What sibling has not been hurt by a brother or sister? What friend has not been failed by a friend? And which of us have not been provoked? Which of us have not been tempted to selfishness, to anger, to jealousy and greed? Which of us have not forsaken to love? Which of us have not forsaken love to fight for some piece of the creation that we think we desperately need? We need to wake up and admit our guilt repent of our sinful use of speech and start listening to the Holy Spirit in those quiet moments before we speak. Yes, we should think before we speak. And yes, we should listen before we speak. There is a moment, an extremely brief blip of a moment, but a moment nonetheless, where we have an opportunity to choose our next words wisely, where we can ask ourselves, were the words we're about to speak uh, reflect the image of Christ or the image of Satan? Will our next words tear up or build, tear down or build up? Will they condemn or redeem? Will they divide or reconcile? And we must say no to our sinful nature. We have been freed from our bondage to sin. But remember, this freedom has a from aspect and a to aspect. And we're going to learn what we, be, we have been freed to next. Number four, we must speak words to serve others in love. Again, Galatians 5.13 and then 14. Paul says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Paul Tripp says, that we say no to the rule of passions and desires not only because Christ gives us the power to do so, but also because we have been called to serve. We are called to put off self-indulgent talk and put on talk that flows out of a love for others. Speaking in a way that serves the needs of others is at the heart of God's will for us and his enabling grace makes it possible. And this is the idea. When you speak with others, are the words that you speak answering the question, what's in it for me? Or what's in it for them? How can I benefit from this? Or how can I benefit them in this? It's another way of asking the question from the last point, is what I'm about to say a reflection of Christ or of Satan? Paul Tripp goes on to clarify that serving in love does not mean that I become a slave to the agendas of everyone around me or become a doormat. Rather, it means that I live with a redemptive purpose. Love desires another's highest good, and the highest good I could desire for myself is that he or she would become more like Christ. Let me give you a couple examples. I caught my son, I won't tell you again which one, uh, but I caught him in a lie the other day. The transgression really wasn't that big. What he wanted would have been given him if he had just asked for it. But he didn't think that he would get it, and so he lied about what he wanted. Now, a lie is always punishable, but if I left my response to just the punishment, then that's not really desiring his highest good. Now, is it? 
I mean, it's easy to just dish out the punishment and move on. Whatever is quickest and what, whatever requires the least amount of time and effort from me, right? But thankfully, instead, in this instance, Melody and I took time to show him how lying damages relationships. It breaks the trust between him and us, and it hurts his relationship with Jesus. And we encouraged him to tell the truth and assured him that we still love him. We did that with the hope that the next time he's tempted to lie, he will, refrain, he will refrain from doing so because he understands the damage that it causes to others, not just because he knows he'll get in trouble. You see, it gets him thinking about others, not just himself. And that's more like Christ, isn't it? I'll give you another example. Commitment. Commitment is a big deal. Commitment tells a person whether or not you're reliable. And Jesus has a, a lot to say about commitment for instance in Matthew 5 37 he tells us to let our yes be yes and our no be no you know I'm sure that there are a number of ways to apply that passage but for me it means that when I uh, commit to do something I am going to do it even if it's to my own detriment sometimes well a few years ago a friend of mine had volunteered for some event I don't really remember what now um, but as the event drew closer uh, it became more and more inconvenient to this guy's schedule. He pulled me aside one day and, and explained to me his agenda and the difficulties that he would experience uh, by continuing to volunteer at this place and how much of a relief it would be if he could just uh, back out and ask me what I thought he should do. Well, I asked him what Matthew 5.37 says. I told him that uh, Jesus is telling us here that these people are counting on him uh, to be there, and he needed to honor his commitment and let his yes be yes. Now, I could have told him what he wanted to hear, but truthfully, people need to be told what they need to hear more than what they want to hear. Next, let's look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. It perfectly depicts what it means to speak in a way to serve others in love. The Apostle Paul says, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And Paul Tripp takes this verse and he breaks it down into three categories uh, where he uh, says that if I'm going to serve another with my words, then I need to consider three things. First, the person, where the Apostle Paul says, uh, according to their needs. I'm sorry, where the Apostle Paul says, only what is helpful for building others up. That's the person. We're considering the person. Then there's the problem, according to their needs. And then there is the process uh, that it may benefit those who listen. It asks the question, what do I know about this individual? What is their real need? And how can my words benefit them? Now, let's be honest. In our own strength, we can't do this all the time. We might have a lucky day someday, one day uh, out of the year where we pull this off on our own. But in our strength, in our own strength, we just don't have uh, what it takes to speak to others this way. Um, which brings us to our next point, fortunately. Number five, we must speak in step with the Holy Spirit. Uh, Galatians 5.25 says, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. And as Paul Tripp would say, keeping in step with the Spirit means speaking in a way that reflects his work in me and encourages his work in you. 
Speaking in step with the Spirit means taking time to listen, examine, reflect, and prepare. It means communicating in a way that promotes the Spirit's work of grace in our lives and others. Now, I use my kids as illustrations a lot. Maybe you've noticed. Uh, But it's because they are one of the two relationships with which I am the most interactive and engaged, and they are the single relationship with which I need the most grace and work from the Spirit. We have a lot of families in our church, so I am sure I'm not the only one uh, here. And when my kids do something wrong, which is every day, we all do something wrong every day, uh, the natural tendency is just to immediately pounce, immediately prosecute, and immediately punish. And I would, you know, again say that that's probably the tendency of most parents. But that approach doesn't really reflect the work of the Spirit, now does it? When I immediately execute judgment, how much time do you think is taken to listen to my children? How much time is taken to examine the situation? How much time is taken to reflect on my own heart condition? How much time is taken to prepare a response that reflects Christ's work in my heart and encourages his work in others? Well, I can tell you exactly how much time for each one of those because I've been in all of that countless times. None. Zip. Zilch, there is no time taken at all, and the work of the Spirit is not at all reflected in my words. Here's how I know um, that God wants us to be slow with how we speak. He tells us, Proverbs 18, verse 13, he says that to answer before listening is folly and shame. And in Proverbs 29, verse 20, That if you see a man who is hasty in his words, there is more hope for a fool than for him. And then in James chapter 1 verse 19 and 20, James says, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. These are truths that can be applied in any relationship, not just that with children. When we fly off the handle and quickly spout off some hasty answer, we fail to consider the person, the problem, and the process. We fail to reflect Christ's work in us and encourage Christ's work in others. And we give in to the passions and desires of our flesh. Y'all, this cannot be. Uh, We must speak in step with the Holy Spirit. And the Apostle Paul tells us in Galatians 5 what that should look like. He says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, he says, there is no law. That means there is no limit to which we can communicate with others in this way. And when we do so, we see Christ's work in others. The The more I show Christ's work in me and how I speak to my sons, the more I see Christ's work in him, and the more I see both of them uh, striving to be more like Jesus, which, I mean, is all we can ask for. And then we have our final point. We must speak with the goal of restoration. And that's Galatians 6, verses 1 through 2. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. 
Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Now Paul Tripp uh, makes a very uh, careful clarification here to make sure that we don't misunderstand what the Apostle Paul is saying. The Apostle Paul is not saying if you catch someone in their sin, as if you walked in on someone and caught them in the act. When we're not undercover cops here, this is not a sting operation. Uh, But he's talking about when we sinners get entrapped and ensnared in sin. Paul Tripp goes on to say that sin is deceitful. The devil is a schemer who will whisper fine-sounding arguments in our ears just to convince us that what we're doing is okay. You remember the event in the garden. All of us are prone to sin this side of glory, Paul Tripp says, and we get caught in anger, pride, self-pity, envy, vengeance, self-righteousness, bitterness, lust, uh, selfishness, fear, disbelief. And what this tells us is that we need to remember that when a brother or sister in Christ gets entrapped in sin, we are equally susceptible to that entrapment. This is what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 7, verse 3, when he says, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Let me take that speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. You see, when we approach a brother or sister, trapped in sin, uh, without first taking time to pray and seek God's will and his wisdom, without first taking time to examine our own hearts, without first taking time to make sure that we are walking and talking in step with the Spirit, to make sure that we are reflecting Christ's work in us and encouraging Christ's work in others, we actually compound our sin on top of that of others. That's why there is a plank in our eye and just a speck of dust in the other person's eye. Then when Paul says that those who are spiritual should restore him gently, he is not talking about, you know, some spiritual super soldier or someone in an official office like a pastor, elder, deacon, missionary, or evangelist. He's not limiting this uh, action to someone like that. But he's talking about all believers in Christ. All of us, Paul Tripp says, if we are living our lives worthy of our calling, are positioning ourselves to be God's agents of rescue and restoration. We must humbly use our words to rescue and restore others, our brothers and sisters trapped in sin because Christ gave his life to rescue and restore us to the Father. We must do so gently. We are not the judge, jury, and executioner here. We are the rescue team sent into the battle to restore and return our wounded brothers and sisters to Jesus. There is a scene from a World War I movie that I watched recently where a battle is taking place across an open field. Trenches are dug on both sides and as the sun blazes across the afternoon sky, bullets and grenades are launched from one side to the other as the Germans and British fight to overtake their opponent. Suddenly there's a break in the gun smoke and the camera focuses in on a man racing across this field from the German side to the British. Turns out he's a British spy that has been gone for days. 
and is now found racing home with news of a secret that would end the war. Both sides spot the man in the midst of the field and shot, start firing from both sides. There's an explosion and the man disappears. Later that night, the British assemble a rescue team to search for the spot. Turns out the Germans assembled a team as well. And both teams find each other in the middle of the field. Fighting breaks out and only one British soldier survives. In a quick effort to dodge into cover, he finds the spy who was presumed dead but is actually still alive. The spy's legs have been blown off and he can't make it any further. Then the sun breaks through the night sky the next morning. Smoke still covers the field, but through the smoke we can see the sole surviving British soldier carrying the crippled spy on his back as he races home through the barrage of German bullets, still, still flying to try to stop them. You see, when a brother or sister is trapped in sin, they are crippled, and they are unable to get themselves home to safety. That is why God sends you and I into the battlefield to rescue them. That is what it means to carry their burdens, to lift them up and carry them home. They are not able to carry themselves, so we must carry them for them, even as the enemy continues to attack. This is what Jesus did for us. We could not carry the burden of sin on ourselves, so Christ carried our sins for us all the way to the cross, and he reaches down to pick us up from the battlefield and carry us home. Let me close with this final excerpt from Paul Tripp's book. Winning the war means choosing our words carefully. We do not want to give any room in our talk to the passions and desires of the sinful nature. In our own conceit and envy, we do not want to provoke one another to sin. We do not want to bite and devour one another with words. Rather, we are committed to serve one another in love with all of our talk. We want to speak in step with what the Spirit is producing in us and in others. We want to speak. We want to speak in a way that encourages the growth of that fruit. We want to speak as gentle, humble agents of restoration and as burden bearers committed to live by Christ's rule of love. What radical revival, reconciliation, and restoration would result if we carried this call into every relationship in our lives? Let's pray. Dear God, we love you and we uh, thank you for today. We thank you for this opportunity to have uh, heard your word. Uh, we pray that it has pierced our hearts and uh, encouraged us in the right direction towards winning the war on words, towards using our words for restoration. Um, and uh, we pray that going forward, uh, as uh, we, we close out this series next week, that all of these lessons will remain on our hearts remember them and remember uh, that when we speak to each other uh, that we are ambassadors of God and representatives of Christ in one day we will stand before you and give an account for every word that we spoke we love you and it's in your name Christ Jesus we pray amen